Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, where we are centering the narratives of the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Knox, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Brother Jones? I am okay. It has been a week, though. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, why don't we just dive right into it, Derek? I have several thoughts on the stuff for this week, and I do want to start by talking about a Tatiana Jefferson. Right. Now, for those of you who were under a rock this week, a Tatiana Jefferson is another black person that was gunned down in her own home, this time while she was playing video games with her nephew. Police were called by a neighbor using the non-emergency line to do a wellness check as it was late, and her door was open. So Aaron Dean, the officer, creeped up to her window, commanded her to put her hands up through a window, and gunned her down within about four seconds or so. He resigned a few days ago and was arrested for murder. Now, for our white listeners, know that your black brothers and sisters are at a point of anger, trauma, and toxic stress. Amber Geiger will likely not serve her full sentence and will probably get out with a documentary and a book deal, probably a couple, probably a couple other things. And that blasted hug she shared with Brand John has been kind of front and center of that case ever since it happened, rather than the senseless mm-hmm. murder of both Majan in his own home. So, yeah, that whole thing happened. On- honestly, Derek, I-, I-, I feel like we're a traffic stop away from a civil war. That's That's been my thought pattern for the last little while. The toxicity of police brutality and gun violence, particularly gun violence within the context of police brutality has really been weighing on me. There are so many things that black folks are aware and are becoming more increasingly aware that we cannot do without fear of, you know, losing our lives. We can't seek help after a car accident like Renisha McBride did or like Trayvon. We can't wear a hoodie like Eric Gardner. We can't sell loose cigarettes like out in Sterling. We can't sell CDs. We can't stand in our own bathrooms like from Harley Graham. We can't sit on a stoop like Bernard Monroe. We can't ride a bicycle like Dante Parker. We can't cosplay with fake swords like Darian Hunt. Can't play with fake guns in the park like Tamir Rice or even mind our own business in a park like Rekia Boyd. We can't fail to signal like Sandra Bland. Can't be mentally ill can't hold our medication, reach for IDs, not our cell phones, not can't can't go to our own bachelor parties. And now after both Majan and Tatiana Jefferson, we can't mind our own business in our own homes, not mm-hmm. eat ice cream, not play video games with our loved ones. Many of the individuals who were victims of these previous killings, many of them were unarmed and none of them presented any kind of threat. This is why black people in the country are angry, scared, traumatized, stressed, and otherwise exhausted. And we and we don't particularly care to hear about all the, you know, the righteousness or forgiveness of Brand John, of Amber Geiger. America has not repented for its dehumanization of the black body. And until it does, black folks are going to remain indignant. We're going to remain in that state of stress anger and fear I just need everybody to understand that this is what this is what black folks in America are dealing with and especially for my Mormon brothers and sisters this is part of our baptismal covenant and part of the symbolism I believe of the partnership with the NAACP that uh, President Nelson has spearheaded we need to prioritize those relationships so that we can be able to be in a better position to mourn with those who mourn and comfort those who stand in need of comfort so at least for this week, there's you probably don't feel like there's a lot you can do, but just at the very least check on your black brothers and sisters. We're not doing all right. It's also important for our listeners to know like what the white privilege side of this looks like. There are many yeah. white individuals who go up to the cops with weapons and or throw things at them or yell at them or you know do all sorts of things. And when it's a a white uh when the cop is looking at a white person who's a threat, they have all these options come out the window for de-escalating it. 
um, obviously there there are cop killings of, of white people too. Yeah. But in general, we've got a structural and systemic pattern of of recognizing the dignity of white life. Yeah. That's baked into every institution in this in this country, and so that needs to be named. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's that needs to be uh, named to contextualize all this anger. Like there's there's a real problem here. And then the the other thing that I noticed is. I posted this um, earlier in the week. The verse that came to mind is from Deuteronomy 27, verse 25. It says, Cursed be he that taketh reward to slay an innocent person, mm. and all the people shall say amen. And in context, in context that's really about taking a bribe to kill someone, but in, in it, it can be expanded to, to say, look, if you're getting paid... To kill innocent people, there's something wrong. You are accursed before God. Mm-hmm. The strongest condemnation uh, should be reserved for Officer Dean, mm-hmm. right? And uh, this, there's something needs to be done. Yeah, something needs to be done. I hope in the midst of this, this is kind of. I was. I I hope this is the flashpoint that Amber Geiger's trial should have been. You know what I'm saying? She ultimately ended up getting only 10 years. She'll probably only serve three to five of those. And like I said, probably will get out with a book deal and several other things. And again, that freaking hug, man, just I, my my visceral reaction to seeing that, Mm -hmm. like I wanted to reach through the screen and grab the guy, you know what I'm saying? But you know, I never lost a relative to police brutality. I'm not gonna tell Brand John how he should forgive or how he should respond to his own trauma he probably needed that and I'm going to give him that you know what I'm saying but even still I really hope that we look at this case as almost for lack of a better phrase and I feel kind of bad saying this but as a second chance at justice because I really don't know that Amber Geiger and you know both Mijan's family are really getting justice yeah to me justice would be if she is going to stay alive for taking another man's life, she needs to be giving the rest of her life to making mm-hmm. sure that what mm-hmm. she did to both Majan is not repeated. You know what I'm saying? Right. That is what I believe justice would be. I want the same for this officer that killed a Tatiana Jefferson. I am hoping some measure of justice is done to both her family and, uh, and to him. So I don't know what that looks like, but that is just what I'm hoping for this time around. And since they're similar scenarios, I fully expect for there to be a conviction. You know, that that heightens one of the, you know, a lot of people focus on Trump and what's going on with Trump. But there's something we can do, and that's elect strong, progressive um, DAs in every jurisdiction in this country. Right. Mm. Because that's where you're going to get the uh, someone who has the discretion to prosecute or not that can be used for good or for ill and low-level nonviolent offenses um, by people of color you know those can be handled in a in a much more restorative justice approach but then when you've got something like this a DA can prosecute this vigorously and make sure that justice gets done and that's that's and I'm a theologian. I'm not a poli- you know, I'm not a legal expert or judicial, but I even even I know that right. Mm-hmm. We can do something locally by electing DAs that have uh, that have the qualifications ne- needed to serve justly. Cool. I want to move on to the next big thing that happened this week. This actually happened in the church, and it's kind of impossible to have missed this. But if you did, the big piece of news in the church this week was the church opposing the proposed rule change that would ban conversion therapy. Derek, what was your initial response to that? My initial response to that would be to think of all of the survivors of ex-gay conversion therapies that I know. These stories are not pretty. Uh, We've got a chain of, of stories dating back from, well, even at BYU in the 1970s, you've heard of McBride's shock therapy aversion yep yeah yeah he basically took gay men uh paired the stimulus of some erotic imagery of men with electricity 
shocking them uh, to train them to not like men anymore and it did not work right mm -hmm. that that did not work um and then we've got mutations of conversion therapy people trying to take advantage of some legitimate explorations of sexual fluidity and distort that into saying oh let's let's we can use that umbrella as an excuse to try to change people and it's not going to work and just thinking about all the people that I know who have who have endured such awful things and been damaged by them um yeah I thought about that mm. And how if this practice were any other practice for any other population, it would have been banned a long time ago. Mm. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. If they did these things to to people based on for the color of their skin, for example, yeah, no one no one would do that. Right. Yeah. That would have been banned long ago. These these practices are unsafe, uh, and they don't work mm -hmm. and should be banned. Uh that's that's the whole point of having professional licensing so we don't have quack medical procedures being done to people right um it's this is like to me worse than bloodletting i think <laughs> doesn't work and it hurts people yeah and what people are trying to do with with these objections is weasel around the, the situation and and claim that the rule as written is ambiguous and overreaches, but I don't think it is ambiguous at all. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it overreaches at all either from what I can understand of it. And I'm not a mental health professional. What were your thoughts? You know, I saw the headline and part of me wasn't surprised, but part of me was also like, this has to be a joke. You know, I had, I, I'm somewhat ashamed to admit I had mixed feelings about it because part of me was like, the church can't really be against this. You know what I'm saying? Because I've heard the church earlier this year come out against, like come out, not necessarily come out in support of a, of a ban on conversion therapy, but a bill was about to pass in Utah mm -hmm. and the church didn't say anything about it. In fact, they were like, yeah, we're cool with this bill. Right. The Mormon and gay website said they were against conversion therapy. The church family services they have a policy against conversion therapy, at least for sexual orientation. And that's kind of where I missed things a little bit. You know, this is a general ignorance of the trans community. That's kind of where that came in. But I had failed to note that the policy that LDS Family Services has is against conversion therapy specifically for sexual orientation. That's what they specify that policy is against. However, when it comes to gender dysphoria and people who are trans, they have a lot more questions, which is where I understand the majority of the objections that the church had to this proposed rule change to be coming from. So what I thought was, okay, if they are against conversion therapy for sexual orientation, what exactly is their problem with the wording of this proposed rule change? Because to me, their complaint was that it was ambiguous or that it uh, overreached in some areas and wasn't specific enough in others. I was like, well, this seems pretty cut and dry to me. What's what exactly is the problem? I went through the all of the church's problems with the proposed rule change. So they said the church wants there to be an exclusion of the following things from the definition of conversion therapy. They want to make sure that when it comes to the definition of conversion therapy, that these things are not included in that definition. The therapies are therapies that address premarital, extramarital, irresponsible, abusive, or predatory sexual activities, therapies that discuss the client's moral or religious beliefs or practices, which they're already trained to do anyway, therapies that account for the client's capacity for sexual fluidity, therapies that explore other psychological conditions as potential contributors to reported gender dysphoria. The first thing on the list is therapies that assist a client in achieving the client's self-determined goal to modify or cease behaviors or expressions that the client determines are inconsistent with the client's values or that are objectively dysfunctional or destructive. Now, if the client is a child, who's going to be deciding that? You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, who decides what is destructive? Who decides what is best for the client? Because generally speaking, wouldn't that be the parents? And if the parents are in disagreement about how to handle the gender dysphoria, 
then what is that going to mean for the child? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and there are obviously limits on what parents can do to their kids, right? Yeah. There's laws. You know, I, you can't take your kid and, and it's not legal to do a whole bunch of stuff to your kid just because uh-huh. you're the parent and you decide that it's okay. Um, but I think part of it, part of it goes back to what I understand from the rules as proposed was that something didn't count as a sexual orientation change effort if it was sort of orientation neutral in the therapy. That is, if you would do the same thing for a straight client that you would do to the gay client, then it doesn't count as change. For example, if you have a straight client who's struggling uh, with, you know, straight pornography or straight some other uh, behavior that's destructive, then and they and the the client self identifies that as inconsistent with their values and they want to stop that behavior, and you would help them stop. Well, then yeah, you can help them stop, but that's not an orientation change. But if right. you do the same thing for a gay client as a straight client and you would do it exactly the same way to help them stop whatever behavior it is that they is harm they feel is is harming them then then that's permitted already you don't need to have all these extra amendments and exceptions to carve it out i think that's a very common sense approach to take yeah i would hope so like this seemed to be a very common sense approach to take to me when i read the original proposed rule change so I don't know. I just feel a kind of way that the church felt like they had to list all this stuff as if either this wasn't going to be included or if they're trying to use this as some kind of loophole to impose what they want on particularly kids dealing with gender dysphoria and kids that may be trans. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like we, we, we talked about this briefly when we talked about uh, Mario Lopez here several mm-hmm. weeks ago. And you would think that people like him, I don't know, they, they, they feel like that kids are exploring their gender de- gender identity one day, they're declaring they're another gender one day, and we're getting reassignment surgery the next day, you know? Nobody is yeah. doing that, you know what I'm right. saying? Like, no one is beginning no one is beginning medical interventions mm-hmm. before puberty. No one's getting surgery past 18, you know what I'm saying? Just, that's not really a, a thing. Like, there, there seems to be this assumption that we are not being careful and methodical about how we treat children mm-hmm. with gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what's getting to me about that is what is what does the church think about how the world of psychology and psychiatry treats people dealing with gender dysphoria and trans folks? Yeah, it's, it's challenging because there's um, a number of voices within the trans community who feel that if you if you intervene um, before puberty, before the before the patient goes through the quote wrong puberty, right? Yeah. Um, then you can save a lot of heartache, a lot of pain, a lot of uh, all sorts of things. Because for a um, for 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 example, a trans girl who is dreading going through a male puberty, that's it. It, it would it would do awful things to her body that are irreversible really mm-hmm. or are very difficult to reverse there's a lot of secondary sex characteristics that come up a deepened voice certain muscles facial hair all these things will happen to this girl but if you block this in time then you can prevent that from happening and, and so that's reversible like if you yeah. stop taking those puberty blockers yes then right exactly okay yeah um and so that's that's kind of what what some and I think but here's the thing these things should be done as part of a sound comprehensive evaluation of the patient to make sure that they are aware of what their choice leads to um, many trans people don't think that the medical providers should be gatekeepers anyway this should right. be a mutual decision that really is supported and em- embraced work together between the the physician and the patient and that's how it should be it shouldn't be like the physician says oh i know what's best for you and you don't get to have this determination of your over your own body which is sadly what the treatment of trans individuals has been for a while but getting back to the objections to these rule if you have competent caregivers they're not going to uh 
you know, to, to rush a, an eight-year-old into hormones and surgery. Okay. It's be, there's, there's like a, an escalation of how this goes. You right. begin having a social transition, living for a time as, as the gender that you know yourself to be, um, and, then, and then you assess later and then see where it goes. And then I think there's, that is the, the best practices that are what the rule is, is embracing. I don't mm-hmm. think that there's anything to be worried about except that something that comes from fear, something that comes from transphobia, something that comes from like, I don't want there to be gay people or trans people. Mm-hmm. I think that's really what, what, what's at the root of it. I see. Especially given that almost every, I think every uh, professional medical and psychological association in this country and other countries, they're all like, no, conversion therapy doesn't work and it's bad. Every reputable one anyway. Yeah. That much I do know. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are fake, they're fake. <laughs> or You know about this? There's fake organizations out there. Yeah. Like that's what people cite in their studies to like yeah. discount treating like affirming gender dysphoria Mm -hmm. affirming the trans community or the gay community so like they're out there too just the reputable ones though pretty much all of them have they all support affirming trans children and children going with uh going dealing with gender dysphoria yeah and i should also say that the trans community is very very diverse and um may not agree on everything and may not have they do not all have the same narrative of what it is they want um and how how it, how their transition should go so with it, we should leave room for people to have agency and self-determination yeah, yeah. um like the quote born in the wrong body narrative is is one narrative but it's not the only one there right. are other other narratives that happen and we should really just listen uh, and hold these uh, in fact you don't actually have to understand no you, you don't, don't. Like, all you need to know is someone's name and the pronoun if you need to refer to them in the third person. Other than that, you don't need to understand anything. It's really just about respect. Yeah, you don't, you don't need to know that. Um, and unless you are that person's doctor or sexual partner, you don't need to know any of these other questions it's about anatomy or history or any of that. Right. Like, you just don't need to know any of that. You don't even need to understand in order to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. You just need to, um, you know, trust people and believe people. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Then let's go ahead and move on to this week's Come Follow Me or this coming week's Come Follow Me. We are in First and Second Thessalonians. Now, Derek, why don't you go ahead and set the stage for us? Give us the context. Give us the what and the why of these letters. Okay. So First Thessalonians, most scholars suspect this is the earliest and first letter of Paul that we actually have uh, out of all the letters that he wrote that we still have. This is probably the first. Okay. Because it looks to be written very, very shortly after the incidents in uh, Acts chapter 17 where Paul ministers in Thessalonica and then has to leave. Okay. So if it's written that soon afterwards, then that means it was written before it was not only written before the other epistles it was probably written before the gospels oh yeah of course oh dang this is our earliest writing in the whole new testament check that out yo i learned something new today yes okay sorry keep going derek yeah so this is written before acts obviously um written before so this is our earliest christian document ever of any inside or outside the New Testament. And here we have uh, Paul talking to the to the Thessalonian Christians, some of which came from a Jewish background, some from a Gentile background, uh, mostly responding to how they were holding up in the face of persecution mm. and uh, encouraging them and giving them some teaching and instruction on this and just reminding them of his ministry among them. And then... How recent was his ministry among them at the time of this letter being written? Like he's doing a kind of a welfare check, but how how yeah, long past that is it's this? It's probably I, hard to, to know. Like are they but new could, converts? Like yes, what, yeah, these okay. are still new converts. Okay. Still new converts. Probably less than years. Oh right? gosh, okay. Like less than a few years even. Okay. Um, and so then 
they get they get this first letter to the Thessalonians. And then apparently there's still some misunderstandings that Paul hears about, and then he has to write Second Thessalonians, mm-hmm. which to some extent corrects for what could be misunderstandings from the first. Okay. And we will see. Yeah, we will see. So this is that's kind of where we are. Um, one of the the things is, of course, the ever present Roman context. Okay. Right, because part of the part of Paul's problem in Thessalonica is that he was seen as promoting an alternative Caesar. S- naming Christ as Lord is very subversive, right? Especially someone who was crucified by Rome. Yeah. Saying, oops, this is our king. Like, that is not, that's a big no-no, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's the background to a lot of what's going on in First Thessalonians. Okay. So I just wanted to go jump right into First Thessalonians 2. First Thessalonians 2, okay. And Paul really... There's just so many good things in First Thessalonians, but I just wanted to pick out this is what I'm going to mostly talk about. So I'm going to read from Tom Wayman's translation starting at verse 5. This is First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness to this. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or others, although we could have been a burden to you as apostles of Christ. Instead, we became like little children among you, like a nursing mother caring for her children. Thus, having affection for you, we were pleased to impart not only the gospel of God to you, but also our own souls, because you had become so beloved to us. Mm. For you remember, brothers and sisters, our work among you and our distress, working night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we pl- proclaim the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, to how holy, righteous, and blameless our conduct was toward you who believe. You know that we were like a father with his children with each one of you. We entreated and encouraged you, urging you to live worthily of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, I want to contrast this approach to apostleship with the way that Caesar exercised authority because it's actually completely backwards. And this shows the power and character of Christian leadership. It's not one of coercion or forcing or um, gathering up influence and gathering up power over someone. It's actually divesting power even to this really interesting metaphor here, um, saying that we became like infants, you know. And there's actually a a textual variant reading here in the Greek. There's a confusion as to whether the original was agonathemen napioi, which means we became as infants, or agonathemen apioi, we became gentle among you. I think the more more likely one is we became infants. But then there's this interesting mixed mi- mixed metaphor here because then he goes on to say we meaning uh, Paul and Timothy and his co-workers we became like a nursing mother caring for her children. And that uh feminine pronoun there is in the Greek. You know, it is her children. Mm. So he's actually gendering himself and his co-workers in a female role okay as a nurse as a, as a, a wet nurse someone who now let's look at the this could sound weird but let's look at the actual fi- physical reality of lactation someone who produces <laughs> milk this okay. is uh, <laughs> i don't know I why just, that's i funny. wasn't expecting it i wasn't expecting it no because here's what's happening this is this is really his model okay. for christian leadership a lactating person generates out of their own circulatory system nutrients and calories that are provided to someone else you know it's uh, it's it's a very self-sacrificial act it's a very intimate act and it's a very relational act Mm. it's not about power over it's about sacrificing and divesting something that you have and providing it so that someone else can live Mm. it's a very christ-like model actually when you look at it right the atonement but let's let's contrast that with and this is how he says he he acts as an apostle it's it's one and that's how we should sustain our apostles today we should sustain them with the ability 
to act this way, not to gather up uh, power and influence and glory, which he, he clearly declaims that he's not, right? right? A true apostle of God should never want to be a celebrity, mm-hmm. should never want to be treated like royalty. A true apostle of God becomes gentle or like a little child, also like a nursing mother caring for her children. And I think that is so powerful. I'm, I dream of the day that, that the world will look at our apostles and see this in them. I don't think we're there yet, but I think that would be very powerful. I was actually about to ask you about that because I was uh, something that caught my something that caught my eye was something in Thessalonians five verses twelve and thirteen. I don't. I'm just gonna read it as it's written here in the King James. Mm-hmm. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Now, given what you just read to us about uh, them being likened to the to the wet nurse and what we see here, do you believe it is in that context that we are to esteem our leaders very highly? Like, what did, what is this particular, how do you read this particular verse? Well, you have to look at it together, right? You have to read the whole epistle together, because if you take that one thing about authority out of context, you will miss the relational component. Right. Because for, now, I don't know why Wayman has the word mother in there. It's really like a nurse um, caring for her children. Um, but, uh, or it's basically like someone who is nursing. Well, I guess that could be a mother, but it also might not be. Right. But anyway, it's relational in character, not, uh, not, um, what's the word? Uh, it prizes the mutuality of the, and the reciprocality of the relationship. Okay. Right. That's the heart of, of Christian leadership. Let me just go back to what? Jesus said in Luke 22, verse 26, this is the English Standard Version. Okay. He says, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. This is true Christian leadership right here. And I think within the context of that mutual life-giving relationship, that's where this respect comes out. I see. Right? It's not an artificial respect like, ooh, I got this calling. You better get in line. Right, right. It is... I've nurtured you, I've cared for you, I've sacrificed for you, I've given up things. That's what Paul's ministry was about. He suffered and mm-hmm. made his life hard so that others might be made easier. And that's what all great missionaries do. And we've heard this before. Like this is at least the second or third time we've heard this particular this particular yeah. teaching of somebody making themselves less than so that others may be sustained. In fact, be made rich or be made uh, whole through the atonement of Christ. And so this mutual respect comes out of a healthy life-giving relationship. Okay. Right? And insofar as we have a healthy and life-giving relationship with the leaders over us, Mm -hmm. respect will come as a natural outgrowth of it. Okay. So this isn't so much that a command that Paul is giving us here. He is more stating a natural consequence of what will happen, assuming the leaders of the church. One that he has earned. earned, Definitely. Definitely. Okay, because out of context, it's very easy to read this almost as a command to obey your Mm -hmm. leaders. But that just seems to be, at least based on what you said, to be a natural consequence of selfless leadership and ministry. Yeah, let me just back up and say one thing about how we read the New Testament. I almost think that people should read each letter or each document in the New Testament as a whole in one sitting. Okay. That should be the majority of your reading of the New Testament because otherwise, if you'd pick out a nice verse here and there, you could come away with this monstrosity, stuff that doesn't belong together, stuff that you don't understand what the context is. And For example, it's, it's basically kind of almost like the golden rule of how you would want your own stuff to be read. If I send someone an email, I don't want them to like pick out a line one week and another. I want them to read the whole email, Mm -hmm. right? Even if it's long, I want them to read the whole email from beginning to end, which is originally how these letters were were read. They were read out loud to the whole congregation Mm -hmm. from beginning to end. It's a letter. Right. And imagine if you took 
he went through all my emails and picked out one of my emails to a professor, one of my emails to a colleague, one of my emails to my mom, and spliced different of those verses together out of context. It would it wouldn't make any sense. Right. It would not make any sense. I'm writing to different people on different occasions, and I think that's what we miss when we if we do it that way we will miss a lot if we read the new testament that way right so i really want people to to at least at the beginning or and from time to time read these epistles as whole documents and you can never use them the way that some people would hmm. i would like to also uh ask you about and talk a little bit about second thessalonians 2 Chapter 2, verse 10 through 12. Mm-hmm. We already talked about the... Uh, we talked about the context of both of the letters to the Thessalonians, right? Yes. So, okay, just making sure. Because I remember that conversation, but I just wanted to make sure you didn't want to say anything before we just dove into Second Thessalonians. Well, part of what happens in First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter 4 is Paul talks about the coming day of the Lord, and he makes it sound like it's going to come real fast. Okay, that's and, the okay. And then Paul has to to co- follow up with this. But wait, wait a minute. I wait a minute. There's stuff that has to happen first, and that's kind of the context of Second Thessalonians chapter two. Were the Thessalonians panicking? Is that like why? Well, like what was going on? Like why did he have to write this? Um. Yeah. It, well, in the first case, they were panicking because they thought their dead people were not going to be saved. Okay. And he was he was giving them reassurance, saying, "No, you know, the Lord will come, and then people will will be raised from the dead, and those who preceded us in death will be, you know, they'll they'll you know they'll all get their chance, right? Okay, because they thought for some reason that only the people alive at the coming of the Lord would be saved. That if you died, you you missed out, right? I see. And then he has to go, but wait a minute." Don't think that it's going to come right fast or already came. You know, there's just a lot of misunderstandings. And he says, but wait, this, you know, this man of lawlessness has to come first. And then there has to be this apostasy. There's this whole right. big thing that comes first. So, apostasy. Uh, that was a, that's a big theme, actually, in Second Thessalonians. He talks about how the apostasy has to come before the coming of Christ. Yeah. And there's an interesting thing about this rhythm. I, I might be the first theologian that I know of in the LDS context that, came up with this concept of micro apostasies all right or at least the word i'm sure other people have recognized this before but it's there's this idea from really from second thessalonians 2 of a great apostasy that there's this one big thing that wipes out all priesthood authority from the earth and you have to start over you have to completely reboot all right but if there's a great apostasy, there could be others, and there could be ones that don't remove priesthood authority from the earth and that don't remove God's covenant people completely from the earth, but actually affect God's covenant people. And I call these micro-apostasies. Okay. And which means if there are micro-apostasies, there also could be micro-restorations. Mm. Not a big one, like in 1820, um, with the first vision and the founding of the church, but little course corrections. Now, I say micro, and it still could be a major thing, but it's micro only in the sense that it doesn't completely wipe out God's people and God's authority on the earth. It could still be a major thing. Hmm. One of these uh, micro-apostasies and micro-restorations could be, uh, you know, our treatment of people of black descent in the church. Mm-hmm. Something that was fixed... Uh, well, not completely fixed. But not completely fixed. Yes. But we've got that that's what we're going with this is is the idea that, oh look, Brigham's decision in eighteen fifty two, maybe it didn't wipe out God's authority from the earth, but it still was a mistake. Right. And it was corrected. And so we can have this sort of uh sub restoration. Maybe sub restoration is, is a better <laughs> idea. Because okay. micro makes it sound like it's little. Right. But so you have this this uh, sub apostasy and then sub restoration within the church, and I think we we faced one of these with the November two thousand fifteen policy and its Certainly. revocation. We had a sub apostasy and a sub restoration here. Yeah, in the span of about what three and a half years. 
Yeah, so you had questions about Yes, I had question verses. about Second Second Thessalonians 2 verse 10 through 12. Uh, I'm going to just actually go from about verse 9 here cuz I think that'll help, you know, embrace the mm-hmm. context here. So even him, I think this is the lawless one you're talking about. Right. Whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, Derek, let me tell you the first thing I thought of when Mm -hmm. I read this verse or, you know, this selection of verses. I thought of a, um, you know, that, that there are folks on this earth who don't love the truth because they live in a state of comfort defined by their lies. Right. Now, what came to my mind was this quote by James Cone. I'm still working on reading through Black Theology, Black Theology of Liberation by James Cone, the book. Highly recommend it. But he said in like the opening chapter of that book, oppressors never like to hear the truth in a social political context defined by their lies. There are folks we know who will not be saved because they've embraced white supremacy, the patriarchy, or straight supremacy, and they embrace it because true discipleship will mean losing the comfort created by those constructs. So God will let them have those strong delusions because they had pleasure and unrighteousness. They had comfort. They had ease and unrighteousness. I wasn't thinking about anybody or anything in particular, but I thought about that James Cone quote, and mm-hmm. I couldn't help but think, white supremacy, straight, suprem- straight supremacy, patriarchy, these are strong delusions. These are great lies that people choose to believe in order to kind of shun their duty of discipleship. Because if you discard those constructs, you lose all the benefits that come with them, and you actually have to forfeit a piece of your power and forfeit a piece of your comfort and your ease. So I read into that. I kind of read straight supremacy and white supremacy into that strong delusion. But uh, what did you get? What, What do you get out of that when you read it? Yeah, I think that the big warning that I take out of this is this can happen within the church. Certainly. Because the man of lawlessness looks like he's raised up within the church. You know, he sits in the temple, you know, declaring himself to be the authority. And that uh, that should give us all pause to realize, look, powerful deceptions can occur even within the church. Definitely. So many people. In fact, probably the most wicked things are done by those who think that they're right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you watch Insecure at all, by the way? No. Dang it. No one's going to get this reference then. Okay, continue. Yeah. People, it's it's this brash confidence without humility, without any reality check, without any type of mutual discernment within the community that really hurts people. Definitely. People that think they're doing good even. I've heard you say on Mm -hmm. more than one occasion that the worst homophobes are the ones that think they are doing you a service or doing a good thing. Right. Or right. think that they're loving you. You know what I'm saying? Right. The brief insecure yeah. I the brief insecure reference I was going to make it was gonna be a scene from the last season where one of the main characters approaches another main character who like stands her up in front of her whole family and he excuses his behavior by saying, Hey, we were never together but you know, she says, You're worse than an F boy. You're an F boy that thinks he's a good dude. And that's like Ooh. the homophobia. That's the racism. That is the super, that is the straight supremacy we should be most afraid of. The one that masks itself in benevolence or masks itself in good intentions. Because that one, that brand of ism or phobia is what is hard to detect. And not only that, but it has a much larger influence because it will trick good people into going along with it. Right. Big time. Right. Because the, the whole God hates fags people, no one really you know, supports them and right, right or get fooled. No, no good people are fooled by them. Let me put it that way. Right. I mean, but they were classified people, as a hate group straight but, up, but good people will get fooled by, you know, someone who takes the something and distort it by having the, the scriptures mingled with the philosophies of men, which includes straight supremacy. Big time. Right. And just to take that and put some, some adornment on it and some icing on it and, and some authority on it really can cause a lot more damage. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's the uh, that's the real challenge when we have statements by President Oaks. It's not so much what Oaks says himself; it's how his followers implement it, because those are the frontline people who actually implement and apply this to their kids, to their ward members, to their whatever. And I think that is where the buck stops. Yeah. Is right there. Yeah. You know, all these good people can do awful things because they think it's the right thing. Yeah. So with that, let's go ahead and move on to the prayer roll. Now, I'm putting on... I'm going to put on Gina Rodriguez. I don't know if you watched Jane the Virgin at all. No, I don't. Okay. Didn't. It's to- <laughs> totally fine. I don't watch the show either. I think I knew a couple people that watched the show. But anyway, she's best known for her role as Jane the Virgin. And Gina has found herself in hot water again this week for repeating mistakes she's made before. And this time she repeated that mistake by posting a clip of her singing along to a Fuji song that happens to have the N-word in it. Like, she's full-on looking at the camera, saying this word, and just seems to be totally unapologetic about it. Now, this isn't the first time she said the word and had to apologize. It's not the first time she's done some questionably racist stuff and had to apologize for it. Like, she full-on said this word. Now, Gina Rodriguez is Puerto Rican. She's not black. Further, she has a history of dismissing blackness or otherwise attempting to advance the cause of Latinx culture at the expense of black achievement. For example, last year when Black Panther came out, she tweeted something along the lines of, hey, great job with the inclusion and the the diversity and including women, but where are the movies about the Latinx heroes? You know, that's what she Mm -hmm. did at the time Black Panther dropped. Then another time she was doing an interview with that girl who's the star of Grownish, and they were talking about this movie they did, this animated film called Smallfoot, I think. And the interviewer asked, you know, what's it like being a role model for black women? He asked that question to the Grownish star. And then, you know, Gina interjected and she was like, well, for all women, you know, she's a role model for all women. And (laughs) funny thing was the interviewer who was a black man, like, check that real quick, quick. And he was like, yeah, but for black women in particular, that's a big deal. And he he redirected his attention back to, uh, oh, gosh, what's her name? This is going to like really bug me. Star of Gronish, Yahar Yarash, I don't know her name. But anyway, point being, she has a history of engaging in questionably questionable behavior, racist behavior. So she doesn't have the best track record. And in general, in addition to saying the N-word, which in general you should not say, she also didn't really know how to apologize for it. She's issued two apologies for it, and both of them come up short in some way. Oh. Like, the failure of her first apology was her reduction of uh, of black rage to a matter of opinion or sensitivity when this is just an objectively bad thing to do. So that was right. the first apology, and that was how she failed. Second apology, she didn't address black people directly. She addressed, it, she addressed the community of color. Like, she refused to say black people. This is a woman who just is regularly dismissing blackness mm-hmm. or deflecting away from blackness. Just, just not a good look, and she just did not... I mean, she already messed up with the whole saying the N-word thing, but she also messed up in just not being able to even fully own that to the community that she offended the most. So all, all I want to say about this particular issue is, uh, about that word anyway, is that that word from its inception has been used to dehumanize, disrespect, dispossess, disenfranchise black people and black people alone. We alone bear the pain and the burden of that word. That's what actually makes it our word. It's not some kind of campaign for us to try to take the word back and make it cool again. We're just the only people who are affected by that word as strongly as we are. That is what makes it our word. Therefore, we determine the parameters of that word's usage. Now, that said, I know there's going to be some people like, well, Not all black people agree about that. And you're right. Like, not all black folk are going to agree about the word's usage outside of our community or even within the community for that matter. But we're not exactly split on it either. Like, if you go into a crowded room full of black folks and you scream the N-word, it's not exactly going to be an evenly split civil war of people defending you and people attacking you. Uh You are going to catch several faves that day, and you are not going to have adequate protection. So just, I, I, I I wouldn't say that word. Just don't say it. 
Like, don't suppose you have a right to say the word for any reason. I don't care how many black folks you grew up around. I don't care that your black friend lets you say it. I don't care how unfair it feels for you to not be able to say that word when you hear us say it. Like, there are things we don't get to do. There are things we don't get to say. There are places we don't get to go. I've already listed a bunch of activities that black people cannot do and are afraid to do because we could get killed for them. So you can not say one word. Like, if this is our yeah. burden, you can bear the burden of not having everything. You can bear the burden of not being able to say one word. Like, I had this conversation once a few years ago. This was the last time I had a conversation with a white person about who can say the N-word. It was with a former mission companion. I had checked one of his friends online for using the word, a Polynesian guy who felt like he could use the word from Utah. And my you know, former mission companion approached me in private and asked me about why people couldn't use the word. I explained it to him in a methodical and a kind manner. And that was the last time I was methodical or kind about explaining the N-word. Because then he just shoots back at me and he says, I disagree with you. He completely dismissed me, said, we absolutely can use that word. And if you use that word, then I should be able to use it too. That was the last time I had a conversation with any white person about who can use the N-word. You know, I lost a friend that day, somebody I once had a lot of respect for. But this is, this is why right here. It doesn't mean the same thing to you as it does to us. That is why there are different rules. So please understand that. And if you can't understand that, at least respect us enough to honor that much and just simply not say it. If you want to respect the humanity of black people, if you want to honor our humanity, simply don't say that word if you don't want to take the time to understand why you don't get to say that word. So we're going to keep Gina Rodriguez in our prayers that she won learns to acknowledge and uh, respect black folks enough to apologize directly to us and also enough to not say that word again on her own personal Instagram page. Derek, who are you putting on the prayer roll? So earlier this week, I decided to engage in some online activism, which is probably not the smartest thing in the world. <laughs> but there was it, it, it came into my space, right? So I got this sponsored ad from the Mutual app people on Facebook and this this like straight supremacy just popped up in, into my feed which is a big contrast to the rest of my feed if you see it from my view all my other queer and trans friends and very pro LGBT friends like all over the place and then I, this pops up and I'm like oh <laughs> so basically what happened is there was this mutual success story with this lovely picture of these you know exactly what the picture looks oh, like oh yeah yeah, oh, yeah, it's like two white people with flowing <laughs> hair in the wind outside. You can tell just by looking that they're LDS, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And because LDS people take these weird pictures, what's up with that? I'm a convert. I don't know what this is about. Bro. I mean, white LDS people like you. Have I grew these, up. There's in like it. this glow, know. like there's this aura that comes in these pictures, and I don't know. I hope I have that aura too. Mm. But anyway, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They, you have the pictures out in the flowers and the leaves with the ring and the whatever. I don't know what this was. <laughs> with the but ring. anyway. <laughs> so I said, in response to this ad, I said, when will you allow same gender matching? Yeah. Now, let me just back up and say, I honestly don't think there is any logistical, doctrinal, moral, or ethical reasoning for them to not allow same-gender matching. Now, mm. it sounds weird at first, but let me put it this way. Under the way the law of chastity is written now and interpreted now, um, even if someone like Oaks says they're going to treat heterosexual immorality the same as, as gay immorality, which I'm not sure exactly what that means, <laughs> but I can use that to say, look, if that's true, the law of chastity is about, the way they interpreted it is about sex and it's about marriage. Anything that's not either of those two things is totally okay. Basically, if it were okay for a straight couple, then a gay couple could do it as well. So under the law of chastity, as it is written literally, an unmarried gay couple can do anything an unmarried straight couple can do. Right? right? There's certain things off the limits for, for unmarried straight couples. But things like dating, holding hands, holding out yourself as in a relationship, kissing, snuggling. Um, obviously, there are boundaries. But anything, including dating, including finding one someone online, anything that a straight unmarried couple can do, we can do. Like, why not give me 
everything I'm entitled to under the current system, right? If yeah. you can't change the system, at least give me everything I'm entitled to under the letter of the law as it is now. That should be completely fair. And anyone who has half a spirit of generosity towards gay people, they might say, well, I can't fix this, but I'm going to give you everything I can. Mm-hmm. Right? I could kind of respect that. But this guy decides to to not actually come with any amount of empathy or curiosity or whatever. But here's what he responds. He says, okay, my, my question was, when will you allow same-gender matching? And his response is, probably the day after the church allows same-sex same marriage in the temple and chapels, which... Could have been actually the start of a good a good answer if he's like, yeah, I'm actually planning to do this, and I hope for this day to come, and and this makes a good uh, like still that's not the right answer, yeah. but at least he could have he could have been open minded enough to say, you know what, I need to have some humility, some generosity, and some mutuality about this. He could have taken a line from you know the Apostle Paul here and say, look, I'm going to sacrifice something here so that you can you can thrive and you can live. You know, providing milk to someone is literally life giving. That's what apostles should do. Apostles should not be life-draining. And neither should this guy right here. So he says, but anyway, so he says probably the day after the church allows same-sex marriage in the temple and chapels, i.e., it's probably never going to happen. Now that's where he really stepped in in Satan's trap. Mm. Probably never going to happen. Like, he probably has thought about this question maybe 20 minutes in his life. (laughs) Compared to the thousands and thousands of hours and millions of hours that my people have collectively thought about this and prayed about it, researched every angle, shaken every leaf on the tree, we've thought about this. And he, uh, he can dismiss it with his straight privilege in just a few seconds. So he says, I'm sorry about your lot in life, which, no, he's not. Yeah, for real. Like, he would do something about it. Yeah, he would even if he can't. I don't expect people to be 100 percent woke already. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I'm actually more patient than you are on these things. And I but saying that actually isn't true. If he were sorry about he would actually listen to me, he would say, hey, teach me, even though that's not the right thing to say either. Yeah. Having a spirit of, of curiosity and inquiry and say, you know what? I don't know everything here. You've lived this life. You're the you're the number one expert on your life. Yeah. If we're friends, I would love to learn from you. Mm. And I could respect that. Right. But that's not what he did. He said, I'm sorry about your lot in life. And remember, pity is, I think, pity is a stage two on the riddle scale of homophobia. Like, oh, I'm glad I'm not you. So sorry for you. Too bad for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got mine, so I'm just going to run off and maybe feel bad a little bit about you. But it's kind of your fault or something. That's really his, his – He he's not really about – um about finding solutions, including the solutions that already would be permissible under the current standards. Anyway, so he says, I'm sure Heavenly Father will be perfectly understanding with whatever you choose to do with it, meaning my life. Right. But I also don't think that church policy or doctrine in this case, since most of Scripture suggests that marriage is between a man and a woman from the moment Adam and Eve were joined together. First of all... No. That's not true. Second of all, Mm -hmm. he has not studied the Scriptures near like a, a hundredth of what I have. I shouldn't boast about that, but I'm boasting in the name of Jesus Christ. There you go. Who gave me those scriptures. There you right? go. That's my life raft. Of mm-hmm. course I can boast in it, right? Mm-hmm. I have been shoved up against this life raft by people like him. Yep. You know, if people say, well, how dare you claim to, to know the scriptures better than President Oaks? Well, I don't, I don't actually claim that. But I have to know the scriptures better than President Oaks if I'm going to survive in mm. this church. Mm. Uh, there's no there's no other option, right? I have to know these things better than those who would use them against me. So let me go back to this. Um, we've talked about this before, but the whole Adam and Eve thing is a big red herring because nothing in the creation narrative specifies that the compatibility of them has anything, anything to, to do, do with the genders. Yeah. It doesn't. It does. It has more of them being the same species. That's what the narrative contrast is. Yeah. Between the creation of the other animals that were not a companion to him versus someone of his own flesh and, uh, you know, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Mm. That's what he says, which any 
gay couple could say to the other. In fact, this whole bone and flesh thing is used by people in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, of people of the same gender, right? I'll get into that some other time. I... But but anyway, so back to this. He says policy is not going to change, which that that's really super arrogant, presumptuous, presumptuous, and um, doesn't reflect any. Even Oaks, I hate to. I should start. Do you know? Because I, I, I love this now. I should start a, po- a podcast called Even Oaks because even. if I can respond to someone <laughs> with the phrase "Even Oaks," yeah. you know that person's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because even Oaks in his speech that he didn't do real well on at the B one conference, mm-hmm. even Oaks said that he prayed and hoped for change mm-hmm. before it happened. Yep. Look, if even Oaks can say, Look, something feels fishy about this, I don't have a confirmation that the theories behind it are from God. Um and I prayed and hoped for change. If even Oaks can pray for change, so can this dude who's trying to support Mutual. Yes, sir. Um, so then he says, I'm not same-sex attracted, which he didn't even have to say. Yeah, why Why do you have to? Right? <laughs> it's clear from from all the street Irrelevant, supremacy. Irrelevant, bro. Yeah, it's and obvious. all the street supremacy that saturates this whole message. He says, I'm not same-sex attracted, but I'm doing my best to be a friend to those who are. No, you're not. Mm-mm. If you were be doing your best to be a friend... You would reach out to me and, and send me a friend request and say, hey, I want to get to know you. You wouldn't have said anything, like, honestly. Like, that is just, I don't know. That comment just. And there, there actually are people who, who are homophobes who have actually friended, friended me, and we've had conversations, and they've shifted. They've shifted? Yeah. Oh, nicely done, Derek. Well, not all, not all the way, but they've <laughs> actually shifted from saying stuff like this to not saying it anymore. Yeah. Anyway, so he says... I hope you can find some measure of happiness in this life, whatever that may mean for you, which he might actually, this might be his back door say, way of saying, I hope you find a, a gay husband or something, right? Yeah, he at least maybe. gets that. He says, you don't need a church culture-based app to find that, which actually is true. Mm-hmm. For every success story that Mutual posts, there are thousands of unsuccessful people still trying to find a match. Don't base your happiness on an app. So he's mis- misinterpreted my whole question. Right. It's not like I'm asking him for permission to be happy. I'm not asking him for permission to even be on this app. Right. I'm saying as a fundamental issue of justice and equity, you need to put my people on this app. Yeah. That would be like, it's not the same, of course, but you know, if go, let's go back to segregated water fountains. If someone told you as a black person, you don't need a water fountain to be happy, how would you react? Um, like, you don't need the white water fountain to be happy. You've got your own water fountain. How would you react? Like That's not the point. That's not the point. The point is you have this systemic structure that is instituted to dehumanize an entire population. Right. The water fountain is only one piece of this whole thing. Not even the most important piece. Mm-hmm. But... But that's it's it, that's what it is right here. It's not like I personally need. I'm actually probably happier in life than this dude is. Probably, right? If he's writing he stuff like that, something. if he's writing stuff like that, he's probably not very happy. He probably, probably does, he probably needs this mutual app, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I don't need the app to be happy. But that's not what it's about. Right. It's about how are you treating people? Are you willing to give people? the fullest dignity, even within the current standards, and Mm -hmm. he's not able to do that. And some people will say, well, what if two gay guys meet on the mutual app and they have sex? Well, what if two straight people meet on mutual and have sex before marriage? Mm -hmm. I mean, mutual shouldn't be responsible for people's covenants and their commitments. What's up with this assumption that gay folks are sexually deviant? Like, every time that question comes across, it's just like, what are you trying to say here? Like. I I absolutely think that under the current, even under the current standards of the church, the way we've approached orientation now, um, that it's not something sick or or flawed. It's not a punishment. It's not a whatever. It mm. can't be changed. Even under all that, I think there is room to ha- to, s- to to open up the mutual app to uh, same gender matching. Mm-hmm. There, he's completely without any foundation for this. Mm-hmm. But he just thinks he is, yeah. and that's the that's the intoxicating drug of straight privilege. Yep, right. White supremacy, straight it supremacy. It gives you this boldness, like 
like uh <laughs> like i i've you know i what i know of i apparently if you take alcohol it gives you a lot of extra super confidence and powers and you start doing bold and rash and things like is that what happens i don't know i don't know either. i mean it, there's different kinds of drugs but anyway the way i hear it but anyway so it causes people to make bad decisions at least and it causes people to uh um to basically do what he does he's, he's this you've got this uh this powerful drug here that that makes him think that he's doing the right thing a strong delusion if you will yes a strong delusion mm-hmm. and well i hope this dude in the resurrection turns out gay <laughs> cold-blooded Derek. <laughs> yeah that, that's my prayer for him <laughs> God, let this guy be gay. I mean, I don't uh, want him on my team, but I think it would be good for everyone involved <laughs> if he ended up gay in the resurrection. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Yep. <laughs> All right. All right. With that, Derek, um, what housekeeping items do you got for us today? Can you tell people where to find us? Yeah. Find us wherever you find podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. What is our website? So our website is beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Yes, beyondtheblockpodcast.com. And you can share this link with other people, just like James shared it with me right now. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz if you don't know, now you know. Now you know. Okay. Yeah. Um and also share us your comments and questions because one thing I want to do is be the best theologian I can, and I think the way that people out there who can help me any of you can help me. You don't have to be a brilliant theologian yourself is by asking me really good questions. If you can ask me really good questions, that is probably the biggest thing you can do to help me on my journey to to become a better theologian. Mm. You know, hard, challenging questions either about scriptures or about the light or about life. Like, I'm glad you asked me that question about, uh, you know, this tension in First Thessalonians about leadership. I'm like, OK, that actually brought out something that I wouldn't have said otherwise. Yay. James asked a good question. Yay. This is great. Well, yeah. Thanks for tuning in and share our podcast. And we are likable on Facebook as in real life. <laughs>